Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, please? And as you're looking in your Bible for Exodus chapter 20, we uh, acknowledge that this weekend is July 4th. We're celebrating Independence Day yet again. How quickly the time flies. And it's a, a weekend in which we will proudly uh, fly our flags. Uh, Beth and I were on vacation, as some of you may know, and we got home. And you know how the realtors leave the little flags on everybody's yard? We didn't get one. I thought about stealing somebody else's, but then I realized I was a pastor. But then I thought, you know, that'd be a great sermon illustration when we get to the commandment that comes later, but I didn't do it. So um, just a little public confession. (laughs) So we proudly fly our flags. We remember the stories of the liberation and birth of our nation. And and, And this day is so special, so sacred for us as a country that on July 4th, we do something that we normally don't do as Americans. We literally take the day off. We take the day off. We forget about work for a day. And instead of thinking about that, we at barbecues and picnics feast on our freedom. Through parades and eye-popping firework displays, we bask in our liberty. And this is good. And this morning, in that same spirit, we're going to explore the theme of freedom, but just from another angle. We're going to consider today a freedom day that comes more than just once a year. On this July 4th weekend, the fourth word from the mouth of God is the call to remember, to observe, and to keep the Sabbath. As we prepare to talk more about that, let us together do our responsive reading where we'll again say all of the Ten Commandments together and then focus on the one, the fourth word that we have today. So join me as it's on the screen. The Ten Words or Commandments are laws that God gave the people of Israel through Moses after leading them out of slavery in Egypt. These commandments reveal the Lord's pattern for life. They are our guide for living as God intended. The first four words of the law shape our life with God. The last six words shape our life with each other. This morning we remember and declare these commandments. So, what are the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this commandment mean? Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Therefore, we will let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. The first part of the law is the great commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our mind, and with all our strength. Beloved, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The commandment to remember the Sabbath is the longest of God's top ten. If you have Exodus 20 open, you can see that. That fourth word marks the transition from the first three commandments that have vertical implications, how we relate to God, how we are to live as a people with God, and the last six, the horizontal effects 
of how we are as a people are to relate to each other, how we live to, with each other impacts each other. And when we come to this command, unlike the others in God's top ten, there is a reason attached to the command, the invitation to Sabbath. We're told and reminded that in the beginning, for six days, God worked creating the universe. But on the seventh day, he rested. God created the universe. And if we go back to the pages of Genesis, it's emphasized again and again that God enjoyed every bit of the work. And yet, on the seventh day, God stopped. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but on the seventh day, I think we can all agree that God was not finished, nearly finished, creating. I mean, we, we know and profess that creating, unlike for us, is not something that God just does. It's not a task for God. It's the essence of who God is. God is the creator. So God is ever creating. We believe, we profess that God at work in the Holy Spirit is ever, even now, creating and recreating the world. And this is important for us to kind of conceptualize because oftentimes we start to talk about the Sabbath. What's been ingrained in us, if we know anything about the Sabbath at all, is that working, doing is bad, bad. And yet what we see in Scripture again and again is that God is a doer. There's nothing in Scripture that says doing is bad. God is a doer. God works. God is active. God is engaged with our world and continually works to make something of it. But what we see through the Sabbath command, what we see in the pages of Genesis is that while God is a doer, God is not a workaholic. Again, think about this. I don't, you know, the Lord God, the creator, took a day off. We know it so well that we internalize it, we don't really give it a lot of thought, but think about what that means for a second. I mean, again, creation is not something that God does. It's not a task. Creation is who God is. God is a creator, the creator. And the Lord God took a day off. In fact, we're told, if you go back to Genesis, that the crowning moment of creation was the day on which the Lord rested. The Lord God was not nearly finished, and yet this God stacked the papers in a pile. This God turned off the computer. This God left the cell phone on his desk, pushed the chair back, and closed the door. Ever since I was a kid, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, whenever, you know, when I heard, learned that God rested, I always wanted to know, what was this rest like? What does God do when God rests? Does he play golf? Tennis? What is God, what's God's rest like? What was that like? The, the Bible doesn't tell us. Genesis doesn't say. It doesn't describe for us God's rest. But Genesis and the rest of Scripture do make clear that this rest wasn't the rest of someone whose work had worn them out. When God rested, God didn't lethargically crash and have trouble getting up the next day for work. Man, creating the universe, dude, takes a lot out of you. Whew. I'm taking a couple of days. I got to just recharge. I mean, when we rest, that's what it's about for us, right? It's like, okay, we got to lethargically crash and, you know, and I'm like, whoa, I got to go back to work. You know, I was off vacation and I love you guys and I missed you, but I got to go back. But God... God's rest was not that kind of rest. It was not some lethargic crashing. It was not some inability to get back up. To kind of visualize it, what Scripture gives us in the Psalms and other places is that the rest of God was more like the rest of an artist. An artist who puts down the brush and steps back and enjoys the goodness of creation as it is who appreciates the beauty and fullness of what is there. And isn't that what we get in Genesis over and over again, and especially on the Sabbath? The Lord God steps back. He pauses and delights in his work and says, yes, that's it. 
it is very good. Here in Exodus, the invocation of God's resting at the beginning of the creation of the universe is God, through this command, inviting us through the Sabbath to do what he did, to do what God did. The idea seems to be that if God can create a universe out of nothing and still stop and take a day to rest, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to either. Beloved, there's a rhythm God wants us to understand, a rhythm in all creation. We're hardwired with it internally, and we see it all around us and in the creation. Six days for the provision of life, but seventh on that seventh day, that instinct to rest, to enjoy, to appreciate, to just be. The Sabbath is that moment of silence. The great rabbi, rabbinical scholar, Abraham Joshua Heschel, called it an island of stillness. Sabbath is that moment of silence. Have you had that moment of silence in your life? That moment when all of a sudden the world is just as it should be. When the stars align, when it just seems in the midst of whatever's going on, it caps perfection. It brings wholeness to what's happened. It's that moment when you soak in the consequences. When you notice the sublime. When you're not just doing work and your kids are around the house, but all of a sudden you realize your son is turning into a man. Your daughter has a beautiful laugh. You're not just working in your backyard all the time and, you know, making it look pretty, but all of a sudden you notice the bird that comes to the feeder and how just majestic it is in its, in its fragility and smallness. Have you ever had that moment where it just seems as though time stops? That is the gift of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the master calendar, which is ironic because we're so fixated on calendars in our day and age. The Sabbath is the master calendar because it locates and grounds us in time. Because for most of us, even though we're fixated on the calendar, how many of us have the frequent occurrence where we don't remember what day it is? <laughs> where one day just seems to bleed into the next, right? The Sabbath is the master calendar because it says, no, today is the Sabbath. Today is a specific day. It's not just any other day. The Sabbath is the master calendar because it protects us in the 21st century from having to have a vacation from our vacation. I mean, isn't that an ironic consequence in our world today? That you talk to people, myself included, and they go on vacation. You go, how was your vacation? You're like, oh, it was great, but man, I just need a vacation from my vacation. I was just doing and going and doing, and it was great, but I just need a vacation. From, I need a vacation from my vacation, which, as we all know, doesn't exist. The Sabbath is giving us the gift of not having to need a vacation from our vacation. The great German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote that really it's our understanding of rest that needs to change because rest in the Bible really means more than having a rest. It means rest after completing one's work. It means completion. It means the peace of God in which the world lies. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. Shalom. Beloved, the point is, is that Sabbath, Sabbath rest is built into the very fabric of creation. I don't know if we've ever thought about this, but with the seventh day, with God intentionally resting, God limits creation. God, who is a creator, stops. God limits creation and sets a boundary. And by God, we need that limit. We need that boundary because without the boundary, without the limit, we forget. We overlook. 
We get lost and we don't know where our center is. The Sabbath is a time to stop and rediscover our center. God's presence. God is our center. And by engaging in the practice of Sabbath, we stay in that center all the time. If you're familiar with God's top ten, you know that not only in Exodus is it given by God through Moses, but later on in Deuteronomy, when Moses is getting ready to pass the baton to Joshua, the ten words are repeated again. And by and large, they're pretty much the same. But when it comes to the Sabbath command, the Sabbath is introduced a little differently. Hear from Deuteronomy how it's expressed there. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath served as a reminder of the Israelites being freed from slavery. If the, this version of the fourth word in Exodus is ultimately about a principle of creation, here in Deuteronomy, the invitation to Sabbath is about life experience. Because the Israelites who received this command knew days without rest. Not metaphorically, literally. They knew days without rest. They had lived through the painful and deadly practice of being worked to the bone. Of seeing their brothers and sisters literally worked into the grave. You can imagine when they heard this expressed this way, they said, been there, done that. The point here is that the gift of rest is the evidence of freedom. The gift of rest is the evidence of freedom. If you will, to be, to just be, is to be set free. To be is to be set free. God is saying, don't be enslaved by your works. Don't be enslaved by your projects and your ambitions. Things that come from you, but turn around and enslave you. But God also says, if you were paying attention, don't enslave others to your work, to your projects, to your ambitions. The freedom of the Sabbath much like our Declaration of Independence declares, is the equality of the invitation. And that's why it is a day when the slave has no more responsibility than the master. And notice that in the Sabbath command, it looks ahead to what Jesus will do ultimately on the cross that we celebrate on this table. It will be the great leveler. The Sabbath is the great leveler. There are no outsiders. The alien, the foreigner, are not to be excluded from the chance to rest. Not even the animals of the field are to be denied the ability to know the freedom of God. Beloved, Deuteronomy, Exodus, despite the change in perspective, the message of the Sabbath remains the same. Sabbath is fundamentally about liberation. Freedom. And how appropriate on this July 4th weekend... When we rest in God, in our freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ, we are literally indebted to no one. And no one is indebted to us. I know in the Lutheran tradition we say it a little differently, but between the, the lines of that specific petition in the Lord's Prayer is an invocation of Sabbath freedom. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are invoking the freedom of the Sabbath. Because God in this fourth word for one day a week is giving us a touchstone in time. 
An opportunity to pause from the normal, never-ending work that we believe is so necessary for living in order that we would taste and experience freedom. Freedom to live in God's presence. Freedom to enjoy God and his creation. And so the fundamental question i got to ask is, what's so hard about this? I mean, I would think of, on the surface, of all of the words that were given, the ten words, this is the easiest one to receive from the Lord, Right? I mean, how many of you right now, you go into work tomorrow, those of you who have to go into work, or sorry, go to work on Tuesday, wouldn't appreciate your boss coming in and offering you more time off? You know what? I think you need some time off. You know what? I'm going to give you the same day off every week. How many of us, that's not the experience we have at all? If anything, our bosses are telling us to work more days and longer hours. How many of us would just die if our boss came in and offered us more time off? And yet, our ultimate boss... From the very beginning is saying, you get a day a week off. Stop. How hard is that? And yet from the very beginning, from the very beginning, this command to stop and rest has been the hardest of all the ten words to obey. Hear me say that again. This word, I would argue, has been the hardest of all the ten words to obey. You know, it started right from the outset. The Israelites were really confused by what God exactly meant by work. And so early Jewish leaders initially isolated 39 different tasks that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And we believe the 39 tasks that were originally came up, they came up with were all related to the construction of the tabernacle. There are lots of different things involved with building the tabernacle. And if you remember, we covered that. They didn't build on the Sabbath. They honored the Sabbath during building the tabernacle. So initially it was like, well, all that stuff, we can't do that on the Sabbath. Because we didn't do it when we built the tabernacle. That stuff's out. But that wasn't enough. Still focused on the exception, the negative. Later rabbis came up with an additional 613 laws... 613 laws that laid out exactly what people could and could not do on the Sabbath. And it didn't make things any easier. The reality is, Israel never truly enjoyed the gift of the Sabbath. We know this because in the midst of all the prophets, one of the prophets who spoke of Israel's downfall, Ezekiel, you go and read Ezekiel, one of the things he'll lift up in saying, the nation will fall, Jerusalem will will be destroyed, is Israel's failure to keep the Sabbath. 613 laws, and they still could not keep the Sabbath. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, as we know, some of us, the freedom of the Sabbath had become a means of bondage. It had become not a day of rest, but a day of worry, as people were burdened by rules to which they would always fall short. Jesus himself finally declared how inverted things were. That an invitation had become an obligation when he declared, as we said in our reading, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus, we we know, reinstituted the true meaning of the Sabbath. He actually gave some depth, some more definition to it. First, he did this by healing on the Sabbath. Very controversial, working on the Sabbath. But Jesus healed on the Sabbath intentionally to show that that is the work of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about healing. Jesus healed on the Sabbath as a way of announcing that all creation is intended for wholeness. That's what the Sabbath is about. That we're not meant to be broken. God wants us to be healed. But ultimately, Jesus revealed the freedom of Sabbath through his resurrection. 
Because resurrection is our ultimate Sabbath release. Freedom from death. Freedom from the mistakes of our past. Freedom from the forces around us that seek to fracture our lives. And it's that understanding of Sabbath, of freedom, that led the early followers of Jesus to do something very bold. To change the day in which the Sabbath had been observed for Jews. Jews still observe it on Saturday, the seventh day. But Christians, understanding that in Christ and the resurrection was the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath, moved the day to Sunday. The day of resurrection. The day of recreation. The day of liberation from sin and death. And they called it, as we still today, the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is the Lord's Day. When Jesus came from death into life, it's the day that tells us that there is, as the writer of Hebrews declares, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What this is pointing us to is not just what has happened, but what will be, that there will be peace. The Sabbath reminds the world, reminds us that there will be peace, there will be shalom, there will be wholeness for all creation. That's the thing, just to blow your mind some more about the Sabbath, even though the Sabbath occurs in this world, if you can keep up with me here, even though the Sabbath occurs in this world, even though the Sabbath is measured by our time, the Sabbath as being a gift from God, is not of this world. The Sabbath is an experience of the supernatural. The Talmud, which is a, a Jewish commentary on, the, on the, uh, the books of the Old Testament, in the Talmud it is written that the, on the Sabbath we experience one-sixtieth of the world to come. Now, I wasn't that great in math, but I know one-sixtieth is not that good of a fraction. But compared to the life we're living... One-sixtieth of the world to come ain't bad. The Sabbath is that eternal rest meeting us now, week by week, telling us that what life really is about. It's a, a moment when we stop and we taste eternity and realize, despite all the protestations of the world, that this isn't as good as it gets. So if you're living your life day to day and you've often said unconsciously or out loud, is this as good as it gets? The Sabbath is a continual weekly reminder you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. The theologian Karl Barth wrote something that still just sits with me. He once wrote that what the human soul fears the most is liberation. What the human soul fears the most is liberation. Now, on this Independence Day weekend, that might seem bizarre. We might want to take issue with that idea that what the human soul feels, fears most is freedom. But if we think about the birth of our nation, if we for a moment consider all the freedoms that we herald as a result of our declaration of independence, can we ask in the midst of it, where has the Sabbath gone? Where has the Sabbath gone? Thousands of years later, hundreds even, the work that we do, I think we can all agree, I don't think anybody would take me on on this, thousands of years later, hundreds even, the work that we do is much less physically demanding than what our forefathers did. Much less demanding than the work that our forefathers did in the steel mill. Much less demanding than what they did on the farm two generations ago. And yet despite this, surprisingly, ironically, we have less time than they did. In this age of accessibility, in this age where we have never-ending access to each other through tweets, blogs, and texting, how free are we? How free are we? 
Think about the trajectory of the average human being in modern society. Okay? We wait. We, we are born and we're part of a family and we wait. So there just comes this moment where all of a sudden we realize and then the countdown is on. We wait to earn our freedom. We've got some middle school students, some high schoolers here, you know what I'm talking about. You love your parents, you love your family, but you can't wait to get out. Right? When is my time? Learn to drive. Good. Get a car. Can get out of the house if I need to. We can't wait to earn our freedom. We've all, those of us who are adults, came from that place too. Because our parents, ultimately with our kids, are all about, hey, hey, time to step up. You need to make your way in the world. We want our kids to get out. The greatest tragedy in the 21st century is that they come back. <laughs> what are you living at home for? You're supposed to get out. That's what you wanted. Yeah, but no one does my laundry. <laughs> right? All our lives, it's all about getting out. Growing up and earning our freedom, making our way in the world. But when we get out, when we get paroled, <laughs> it only leads to a bigger prison. Because all of a sudden we're thrust into a highly competitive and demanding world. Oh my gosh, it moves so fast. And it's moving so fast and we can barely keep up and all these decisions that suddenly we have to make and in the midst of all the fast moving and the decisions we have to make, we're told to excel, we're told to invest, we're told to make something of ourselves. We have to become marketable. We, we, we have to stay on top of our game. We have to build our contacts. We dare not fail to take advantage of every opportunity. Every person we encounter is a potential client, customer, or benefactor. Every minute is a chance to advance, to make it, to arrive. The next thing you know, in our freedom, we convince ourselves that we must be working and available to everyone all the time. In our freedom, we feel compelled to prove ourselves. We actually value ourselves based upon our busyness. Think about it when you talk to each other. How's life going? It's good. I'm really busy, though, man. I got so much going on. And it's like, hey, way to go. Yeah. You've arrived. I'm as your pastor. You know, and it's one of the worst things to hear. But people, Pastor, I would love to come and talk to you, but I know you're so busy. And there's a part of me that's like, hey, I'm busy. Yeah, I'm doing my job. All right. I'm busy. What? Really? We pride ourselves. We value ourselves based upon our busyness. The fact that we have no time. And it gets personal. I'll speak personally. I'm no different than you as your pastor. It's a calling, but it's a job. And as I go home and have, don't have time for my wife, and as I go home and I don't have time for my kids, as I go home and I don't have time for myself, my, my justification is, but I'm busy. That means I'm doing it, man. What would you have it be? I mean, what kind of pastor would I be if I wasn't busy all the time? I'd be a lazy pastor. <laughs> and who wants that? I mean, if people think I'm busy, they think I'm doing my job. Are you any different than me? Are you any different than me than in the midst of that lie as the big, giant treadmill just keeps on turning? As we look around and we, as, as we have become the most work-oriented culture in the history of the world. Hear that again. The most work-oriented culture in the history of the world. Do you stop like me and ask, how free are we? Beloved, the paradox of life without Sabbath is that we spend half of our time achieving, doing, going, getting, 
and we spend the other half of our time noticing how much we failed to achieve, how much we still have left to do. Think about that when you talk to people, too. People are always talking how busy they are, and they're always telling you, yeah, I'm so busy. They don't talk about what they've finished. Oh, but I got all this other stuff I got to get done. I'm so busy, and I got all this still, like, all this stuff. There's all, oh, no one ever goes, you know, I'm busy, but I finished. No, no, it's always, I'm busy, and there's just even more. Freedom? Hardly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if our lives were the pages of a book, those pages would be single-spaced, and for many of us, the margins would be non-existent. The words would flow to the very end of the page. God is speaking to us today. This fourth word isn't for the ancient Israelites. It's for modern people like us. We need to set aside our goals, my friends, and start rebuilding our souls. We need to get down on our knees and rest while we confess. We can come here every week. We can turn on the fish and drive around in our car. We can have devotionals at home and we can say and mouth the Lord's claim upon our whole lives. But if we continue to use every day as just another day to catch up on all the work that we've promised to do, if we mouth that God is in charge of our lives and yet we are reluctant to give the Lord exclusive claim on even a single day of the week, we are living a lie. And I repeat where I started in the series on the ten words. These words are not for the people out there. They're not for the pagans, the people who don't know any better. These words are given to the believers, the people of God, us. When you and I ignore the Sabbath, when you and I use again every day as just one more day for all the work that we feel like we've got to get done, we are communicating that when it comes right down to it, we don't trust God to satisfy our needs or anyone else's any more than they do. Don't kid yourself. That is what we are communicating. We pay lip service, but when it comes right down to it, our lives are no different. Our loyalties are no different. Our faith is no different. And the irony of this, for many of us, as, as one of our goals this year is evangelism, is perhaps our greatest Means of evangelism, and many of us struggle with evangelism, but our greatest means is the command, the delight, the invitation to Sabbath. It's our greatest means of evangelism. Because when the world is going round and round and round, never stopping, when we testify by our actions that our creations are not the essence of who we are, we are pointing to not ourselves, but to our God. When we, unlike everyone else, are trying to, not trying to steal time, kill time, find time, there are not enough hours in the day, but we stop, we become living reminders that life, time, is a gift and not the product of our own hands. When we keep this one day in seven and then the rest of the six, the work that we do, the tasks in front of us, the fullness of our lives, I want to be honest, may not change. But how we encounter our lives how we encounter this world will be different and that will be reflected to others. We are filled with a world of people who are stressed out, who are cynical, who are exhausted, who are bitter, and we have the opportunity to exude joy and freedom and it will stand out. 
Our freedom to play, our freedom to dream, our freedom to wonder and explore, our freedom to worship will become infectious. People will say, how do you do it? How do you do it? How can you be smiling all the time? Why are you so happy? Why do you feel so free? What do you mean good stress? I don't know good stress. I know bad stress. What do you mean good stress? Why are you not so closed off? Why aren't you running? Why aren't you complaining all the time? And in that moment when people say, what is it? What do you have? How do I get it? We will be able to point to a reality that is beyond what is in front of us and in front of them. We will be able to point, without eloquent words that we're afraid we don't have, to a kingdom that they didn't even know existed. The kingdom of God. We will be able to introduce them to a person who has been there all the time that they never knew, the person of Jesus Christ. And we will say to them, we are filled with joy. We are free. We are not burdened because we know a time is coming. We taste it now. A time is coming when calendars, schedules, the need to be productive will simply be gone. And people who hear this are not going to say, well, that's nice. They're going to want to know more. It's going to be like a person who hasn't had water for a year because we're hardwired for it. They're going to say, how can I know and experience this? And then we will have our moment to speak of resurrection. And we will say, that's what we're living. We're living resurrection. Beloved, the most powerful evangelistic tool we have is not some apologetic schemata. It is simply stopping and resting. Because at the end of the day, as we celebrate this weekend, it takes courage to be free. Make no mistake about it. It takes courage to be free. It takes courage to submit to trust, to believe. And it's already happening out in our world. And once again, as often has happened in our history, we're behind the curve as the church. It's already happening out in our world, independent of knowing why this impulse is there. There are businesses that are saying, you know what, we're closing one day a week. We're not open. Now, as the cynics in us may go, well, that's for economic reasons. Maybe so, but they're stopping. Rather than continuing to try to make a buck, they're stopping because they, it's just better for business. There are families out there, people in our community, who in the midst of all the teams and activities are standing up for family time and saying, you know what, we can't be doing stuff all the time. We need to protect time for the family. Dude, that's our message. <laughs> people are out there fighting for it and they don't know the reason why and we can give a name to it. This is our time to step up as the church. Everyone talks about how the church is being marginalized. This is our opportunity. And people aren't going to go, oh, great, more rest, wow, more time, boy, boy, you Christians. If we beat them over the head with it and make it legalistic, yeah, but if we say no, we will be pointing to the kingdom, pointing to our Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're asking, okay, I'm there, I get it, rest, Sabbath, I'm in, but I, I just have no idea how do we do that. Here's the rub about the Sabbath, command and invitation. We get into trouble when we try to really spell that out. I mean, we don't want to get to 613 <laughs> laws. But that's the temptation. Tell me, man, what does work mean? What's, what's rest? And what I can tell you in Scripture is that it's pretty general. 
That way it leaves us the freedom to interpret rather than to be held in bondage. And the things that I can tell you if you're trying to find a Sabbath in your own life is that the Sabbath needs to be intentional and specific. It can't just be a spirit or an idea. It needs to be intentional and specific. It needs to be marked down. It needs to be regular. It needs to be something you can point to, a day, a time, a practice. Because as we know in our Christian walk, the Sabbath among them, beliefs, we can believe all the stuff we want, but beliefs without practices are empty and worthless. James puts it this way, faith without works is dead. Our works don't save us, but our works represent, reflect what we truly believe. So it has to be intentional. It has to be specific. What that looks like is so open, but it has to be something that you can point to and say, this is Sabbath. Sabbath, according to the Bible, needs to be communal. It's not individualistic. It's given in community. It's meant for community. I actually think the best time to meet as a small group is as a Sabbath practice. Because that's what it's about, to be a community together so that you hold each other accountable to actually rest. So that you plan and anticipate and prepare so that you can rest together. Not so that every, one person does the cooking or everything for everybody else. It has to be communal. It has to be about rest. And most importantly, Sabbath needs to be about God. It has to be worshipful. God's got to be in the center. If God's not present, then it's amusement. And that's a whole other sermon, but amusement ain't Sabbath. You know, if you're looking for more than that, if you're like, yeah, but I just need some ideas. I came across this great group, a group of modern Jewish artists. They actually call themselves Reboot. I love that. They call themselves Reboot, who in their own faith journey are searching for updated ways to observe the Sabbath, that day of rest. And they came up, there's the website if you want to see more of it what's called the Sabbath Manifesto. They're not trying to be legalistic. They're just trying to get the juices flowing about what would Sabbath look like. And here are some, their top 10 guidelines for observing the Sabbath, okay? So these aren't laws. These are ideas. Here they go. Number one, avoid technology. Ho, 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 ho. Again, pretty general. What does that look like? Some people turn off the electricity. Some people it's like, okay, I won't look at my cell phone. Number two, connect with loved ones. Number three, nurture your health. There's a novel idea. <laughs> Number four, get outside. We don't need a lot of excuses to do that in Southern California, do we? Number five, avoid commerce. <laughs> don't go to the mall? Number six, light candles. I'm going to confess, and it probably will get me into trouble later, that I'm partial to number seven. Number seven is drink wine. <laughs> number eight, eat bread. Sorry, all you low-carbers. Number nine, find silence. Find silence. We just got back from going up to Seattle, and once you hit Oregon, I don't know what it is, Oregon and Seattle, and I, and I love here, I'm not going anywhere, I I'm, I'm, love Southern California, my people, okay? But when you get out of the car in Oregon and Washington, you experience silence. It's random. But even that, I mean, you hear rain, you hear the wind, you hear a bird. I don't know if we can experience silence in Southern California. There's always something, but number nine is silence. Number ten, give back. It's ironic to me and yet providential that our Good News Ministry found Sunday as the day in which to minister to those in need and the homeless. Give back. 
my brothers and sisters in Christ, when's the last time? The last time you got up on Sunday and came to worship out of a delicious sense of freedom. Not because you're like, man, I haven't been there in weeks. Or not because, oh, Pastor Chris is going to notice. Or not because mom says we have to go. When's the last time you came out of a delicious sense of freedom? Not out of obligation. Not because you thought it was what you should do. But because you wanted, you hungered, you needed to be reminded of the ways in which God has set you free. Free from the demands of the treadmill. Free from the guilt of trying to prove ourselves through all our busyness. Free from the insecurity of what others will think or what will happen if we stop and refuse to be plugged in 24-7. Free from our fears about what the future holds and how Death comes for us all. Thanks to the grace of the law. Yes, the grace of the law and the fulfillment of that law and that grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are a people who can enjoy the Sabbath not only on the seventh day, but in all of our living. But to experience that reality, the joy of the Sabbath has to begin with an intentional, purposeful pause for at least one day a week. A day where we stop, a day where we rest, a day where we bask in the reality that God's creation is good. That in Christ alone, we experience our own exodus. And that through the power and presence of the Spirit, we find our abundance. It is July 4th weekend. And beloved, there is a freedom bought by war and defended by sacrifice. We should never take that kind of liberty for granted. But at the same time, there is another freedom that is given and not won. It was purchased by blood and sacrifice too. But it doesn't need to be defended. Because the only one who can take it away is the one who has given it to us. Beloved, the Sabbath doesn't need defending. It only needs to be acknowledged, to be practiced. And we must, for without the law... The grace of the Sabbath, despite what we may celebrate this weekend, without the grace, the law of the Sabbath, we can never truly be free. Amen?